You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about Black history, past and present. So here's how this works. We have five rounds of questions about us. Black history, the entire diaspora, current events, you name it. And with each round, the questions get a little tougher, and the guest has 10 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they'll receive one symbolic black fist, and they'll hear this. And if they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we still love them anyway. And after the five questions, there'll be a black bonus round at the end just for fun. I like to call that Black Lightning. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Walter Kimbrough. At the age of 37, Walter was named the 12th president of Philander Smith College. And in 2012, he became the seventh president of Dillard University in New Orleans, Louisiana. Walter has been recognized for his research and writings on HBCUs and African-American men in college. Recently, he's emerged as one of the leaders discussing free speech on college campuses. Walter's also been noted for his active use on social media, and he was cited by Education Drive as one of 10 college presidents on Twitter who are doing it right. And you can find him at at HipHopPrez, and that's Prez with a Z. And in 2015, he was named by the bestschools.org as one of the 20 most interesting college presidents. In 2020, he was named by College Cliffs as one of 50 top U.S. college and university presidents. Dr. Kimber has forged a national reputation as an expert on fraternities and sororities with specific expertise regarding historically Black, Latin, and Asian groups. He's the author of the book, Black Greek 101, The Culture, Customs, and Challenges of Black Fraternities and Sororities, and has served as an expert witness in a number of hazing cases. Walter presently serves as the Interim Executive Director of the Black Men's Research Institute at Morehouse College and will bring a multitude of his experience and background to the university. Hello, Dr. Kimbrough, a.k.a. Walter. Thank Thank you so much for joining us at Blackest Questions. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm really excited. You know, I have always been so um, in awe of people who decide to take on the realm of a university. As... As a college professor, I look at the role of the president as, you know, sort of like LBJ said, you know, when they were talking about mayors, he's like, you know, life could be worse. I could be the mayor of a a city. I feel like a college president is like being a mayor. You were literally putting out fires 28 hours a day. How and why did you decide that this is the route that you want to take to essentially, you know, bring these HBCUs into the 21st century fundraise and do all the things to say nothing of you know cultivating young minds how and why did you decide to dip your toe in that that treacherous ocean yeah it, you know it's just something that, that developed i growing up i wanted to be a veterinarian and actually got into vet school early at the university of georgia so i did three years of undergrad got into vet school early and then realized after the first few weeks like Ooh, no, I don't want to do this. This isn't, it's, it wasn't fun. Like I thought I'm staying up all night long, trying to go from small animal to large animal. I was like, no. So at the time though, I was still very active in my fraternity as an undergraduate. And I had a chance to talk to Walter Washington, who was a president of Alcorn State. And I sort of looked at him. Mm. I said, you know what? I think I might want to be a college president. Now it's interesting too, because I'm here at Morehouse and 
Um, Benjamin Mays was a legendary president here, and I went to Benjamin Mays High School in Atlanta. So I've had this sort of on me to say, you, you know about Benjamin Mays growing up in Atlanta. So I think all of that led to this uh, for me to, to serve as a president for almost 18 years. And so I've, I've had a full career as a president um, because I started so young, I was 37. Uh, but it was just, it's, I mean, I, I think it's a great calling if you look at it that way. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that's going on and I'm glad I, I have a year at Morehouse to sort of take a break from that that lifestyle because it is, it's a lifestyle when something jumps off in the middle of the night, you're getting the call. Absolutely. So uh, I'm glad to have that break, but I, I just view it as a call. And I'm a preacher's kid too. So it's like when you understand those callings, it was like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I love this idea that a university president is a calling because, I mean, especially since you've chosen to dedicate, you know, your, your life and your resources to HBCUs, yeah. you know, this is the production of knowledge for Black youth. Right. And that is something that I think is a lot deeper than just, you know, it's, it's deeper than a job. It's yeah. deeper than just, you know, I'm here, I fundraise and, you know, make sure these buildings are getting built. It's, it's a much larger lineage. Um, you know, you're at Morehouse. My uncle graduated from Morehouse in 58. My cousin right. graduated sometime in the, I think, late 80s, early 90s. But I have a special place in my heart for, for Morehouse, uh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, um, you know, I started my career at Emory. So mm -hmm. I've been around privilege and prestige and worked at, you know, large predominantly white institutions, graduated from three of them. So I understand that. But when you're at an HBCU, and particularly as a president, I have conversations with students that most of my colleagues would not be leaving mm. because you will have folks come in and drop all of their baggage right there with you. And then you're figuring out, this is not in my job description. I got to figure out how to help this child get some groceries, how they're going to take care of this child, all those kinds of things that just become part of it. And I think that's what makes it so meaningful for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I went to HWCUs my entire life and teach at one now. And, and, you know, lots of people say PWI. For our listeners out there, PWI is predominantly white institutions. I call them HWCUs because HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities. I say HWCU, historically white colleges and universities, because they were set up for the production it's of white up. knowledge. You yeah. know, we just happen to, to go there <laughs> decades later, but they weren't yeah. set up for us yeah. necessarily. And so I, I, I find that working in an institution is is it's rewarding for me as an educator because yes i have my black students where we are talking about some personal matters mm -hmm. and, and trying to have a holistic uh understanding of their college experience but i think it's also important for white students to see black leaders whether right. we are exactly. educators or you know presidents as well now yeah. what was your what's your phd in so my phd is in higher education so i okay. really lean into the study of higher education uh, we sort of then linked to, to my studies of fraternities and sororities and that kind of thing. Uh, but that's that's my my area. Uh, I'm a student affairs guy. So I was always working on that side of the house, mm -hmm. working, you know, the out of class experience. So residence life, student activities, those kinds of issues. Well, I, I wore yellow because I, I heard that you're an alpha. Um, but it's, it's a little, it. it's a little nod because my dad's a Q, so okay. it could be translated as purple and gold as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just we, didn't want to, I didn't want to wear, wear red to represent my brother-in-law who's a Kappa right. and my, my poor grandfather, you know, and, and I, I'm so excited uh, for our listeners to hear more about your book, but my poor grandfather, my fraternal grandfather was a Sigma okay. and had three Omega sons. 
Um, and so there was just yeah. nothing you could do about it. Um, and my my oldest uncle pledged at Morehouse uh, in, okay. the, in the early 50s. Um, so are you ready to play the Blackest Questions? I am ready. I am so thankful that you're here taking a break from your busy schedule. Okay, first question, let's get started. The founder of Monogram, a luxury weed brand, is launching a fund to invest in minority-owned cannabis startups to bolster Black participation in the overwhelmingly white cannabis industry. Who is he? Founder of Monogram. See, this that's a trick question because as a college president, I really shouldn't know anything about the weed industry like that. Um, Monogram. Founded Monogram. I can't give you the answer. I don't know off the top of my head. I know I know who it is, but it's not ringing a bell. Oh, you know who he is. His name is Jay-Z. In July 2019, Jay-Z, a 22-time Grammy Award winner whose real name is Sean Carter, launched a cannabis brand, Monogram. And in 2021, Monogram launched a national drug policy awareness campaign, which educated users about the disproportionate effects of federal drug laws. Monogram used taglines in its ad campaigns, quote, the war on drugs worked if systemic racism was the goal. Another ad from the campaign read, you can marry your first cousin in more states than you can buy recreational weed. So by launching the Social Equity Ventures Fund, Jay-Z's goal is to promote Black participation in the cannabis space and serve as a stepping stone for people who have been maligned by America's war on drugs. So this is Monogram, Jay-Z's new venture. And we know that Joe Biden recently has pardoned federal convictions for simple marijuana possession, which was a huge Biden-Harris promise that he kept. Um, have you talked to some of your students or colleagues about this moment um, and how it affects them uh, as far as not just uh, formally convicted individuals having their records expunged, but are some of your students interested in getting into the cannabis industry and and going down that entrepreneurial road? Yeah, I, I, I've heard more about that in terms of students wanting to be um involved in that industry. In, in fact, in Louisiana at Southern University of Baton Rouge, which is also an HBCU, um, they're really growing cannabis there and really working to change some of that. One of the, the key Senate candidates in uh, Louisiana, Gary Chambers, is most noted for having this commercial where he's smoking weed, you know, in the commercial. So he's really trying to figure out, like, how do we make sure that people can you know, benefit from an industry that has caused so many folks to be locked up. So it really is a sea change going from, you know, all the people that have been arrested or in jail or have some kind of sentence against them for mm -hmm. small usage. And then initially, when we started to have this industry grow, the people who were making most of the money were white men. So it's sort of like, we can't, we can't win for losing. So right. I think it is important for people to get involved. And I think you're seeing more and more African-Americans figure out that this is a way to get involved. I, I know there are other hip-hop artists that have had conversations about getting involved in the cannabis industry as well. Now, as a college president, how did you and your campus negotiate marijuana? Because keep in mind, on the federal level, it's still, you know, like we're on a state-by-state -state situation. There's some places, you know, in New York, it's not really enforced in the same ways anymore, yeah. as long as it's beneath a, a certain amount. You know, how did you negotiate this as a college president? Yeah, it, I mean, it's one of those things that I think overall, particularly at Dillard, we just had a just blanket no smoking policy as a mm. whole. Um, so you just you don't discriminate based on what the person is smoking. It wasn't, I think, any major, you know, we're chasing people down. Now, if you had someone who was selling, that became a different issue. And so I think there was a different level of discipline involved in that. 
but just day to day, you know, you're really trying to do more of the education and talk about it because there, there still could be some health issues related to the use of marijuana. And so those are the kinds of ways I think we really try to approach it because you don't want to be a place. And I learned this when I was working at Albany State. You just don't want to just start arresting students, you know, over and over because you're creating another problem just for, you know, small amounts of marijuana. That's not really worth it. So let's focus more on the education piece of it. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. We're going to take a quick commercial break and then we're going to come back with Dr. Walter Kimbrough. Okay, we are back and we're playing the Blackest Questions with Dr. Walter Kimbrough. Walter, are you ready for question number two? I'm ready for two. Okay. This fictional historically Black college was first referenced on this popular television show. What was the show and what was the fictional HBCU? So the show would be a different world if it's the show that I'm thinking of. Um, and the name of their college for a different world. I'll oh, see, I'm, see, being at Morehouse, I want to say Mission College because that's school days. Mm -hmm. uh, so now I'm, I'm confusing my popular culture references. But it's school days. I mean, um, a different world is the, the, uh, the show. I can't remember the name of the school. The school, you were correct. It's a different world. And it's Hillman. Hillman, Kylie, and being here too, the whole Hillman. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm not doing well today. That's no, uh, that's okay. And you know, and the thing is, as, as I tell all of my guests, this show is for you know, Black history is American history, but all of us have brain freezes. You know, when I was on my podcast siblings show, Panama Jackson had me on his Dear Culture show, and he flipped the tables on me, and I had to play the Blackest Questions, right. and I was zero for two. <laughs> when he asked me some questions. So this is a different world. It's Hillman College. And Hillman College was located in Virginia on the show. And the exact locality of the school was never revealed, but it was alluded to as being halfway between Richmond and the Hampton Roads area. But visual shots of the Hillman campus that were used in the series were actually filmed at two real life black colleges, Clark Atlanta University and Spelman College, both in Atlanta, Georgia. And the first references to Hillman were on the Cosby show. They're made during season one when it's mentioned that that's where Cliff Huxtable and Claire Hanks went to school while they were engaged. And Cliff's father, Russell, was also a Hillman man. And the school made its first on-screen appearance in the third season finale of the Cosby show titled Hillman when Cliff and Claire and their family attended a Hillman commencement ceremony, which also honored the retiring president. So student life at Hillman College was truly extraordinary. The campus had two major fraternities and sororities, Kappa Lambda Nu and Alpha Delta Rho. And the campus had several dormitories, including Gilbert Hall, which was Whitley Gilbert's uh, ancestors, Libby Hall, and then Dorothy Height Hall. And I don't know, do you remember that episode when uh, I think it was Dwayne Wayne and Ron were pledging and yeah. Dwayne drops line and Ron ends up crossing over. And I, I thought that was such an interesting and beautiful episode about two friends who embark on this journey to brotherhood, official brotherhood within a fraternity. And one decides it's not for him and the tension that ensues, but also this lasting idea of you can be brothers with your fraternity brothers, but you can also still have brotherhood with men who are not in your fraternity. I thought that was a beautiful way to explain a scenario that I think a lot of uh, black men have gone through when they, they've decided to pledge yeah. and either gone through it or, or decided to drop line. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that that is realistic. And it's interesting too, because uh, Daryl Bell, who plays Ron, is actually a member of my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha. And he was also in the movie School Days. School I'm, trying days. Get, I'm trying to get some bonus points in here. <laughs> I'm 
because the things you ask me and then I'm answering all these, you know, extraneous things, which are funny, but yeah, it's really interesting to see that as a part of the, uh, you know, that show, that show did a lot, particularly, I wrote a piece for the New York Times several years ago that looked at HBCU enrollment during the years of um, mm. a different world. And there was a market increase. That's, oh, yeah. And there's still people today, I talk to students who just say, my parents told me about it. So I go back and I watch it, you know, on some kind of streaming service. So it really still is one of those major cultural indicators for Black folks when they start thinking about HBCUs, how much that that show plays. So I think you're looking at from 87 to 93, somewhere in that period of time is when the, the show ran. But it really had a, a, a cause an uptick in HBCU enrollment. I, I agree. And, you know, I come from a, a family that went to HBCUs. My mom went to Florida Memorial. I had cousins who went to FAM, uncles who, and cousins who went to Morehouse and Spelman and Howard. So HBCUs were very prominent in my family, extended and otherwise. But I have a lot of friends who are first generation college. And the reason why they, A, went to college and B, went to an HBCU is because they watched a different world. And right. that was their introduction to university life. No one in their family had gone to college. And so they were saying, well, I want, I want this experience with other smart black people and then they didn't know anyone who was greek you know i grew up where my entire sort of all my aunties and uncles my aunties are all akas it's my mom and my, my uncles mm -hmm. were all q's so growing up in greek life that was very normal and natural but i, I have friends who pledged because they saw you know ron pledge they saw yeah. kim pledge in a different world and then obviously bringing it back to school days <laughs> when yep. was it Gamma Phi Gamma? Gamma Phi Gamma, right. Um, you know, and, and Spike Lee crossing over and, and really seeing certain uh, aspects of the fraternal life, which right. they didn't necessarily grow up with, which I think is really important. And then don't forget, you remember back in the day when Martin used to host uh, Def Jam, he always had on HBCU sweatshirts. I remember yeah, he got yeah. on Grambling in Jackson State, Howard, he always represented HBCUs. Yeah. And, and I, I think about that nowadays, it would, it, seem, it would seem a little odd, I think these days, if a major celebrity actually supported HBCUs the way Martin yeah no that, that was you saw it in in the Martin Lawrence show you saw it in Living mm. Single they always Queen Latifah always had it so that was really a part of the culture at that point in time when there was a lot of that I mean that was back in the days when you know Howard Homecoming you had Biggie at the homecoming I mean yeah. so those are some really uh major cultural flashpoints as well mm. okay we're going to take a quick break with Dr. Walter Kimbrough and we will continue playing the blackest questions And we're back and we're playing the blackest questions with Dr. Walter Kimbrough. Okay, Walter, are you ready for question number three? I'm ready. Okay, so now question number three. This organization was founded in early 1960 in Raleigh, North Carolina to capitalize on the success of the surge of sit-ins in Southern college towns where black students refused to leave restaurants in which they were denied service based on their race. What was the organization or hint committee called? It would be SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That's right. Ding, ding, ding. So the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, also emerged from organizers and members of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, known as SCLC. So SNCC was formed at Shaw University under the facilitation of Ella Jo Baker, who is the executive director of SCLC in 1960. It was started as a group advocating nonviolence and adopted greater militancy later in the decade when Stokely Carmichael joined, reflecting a nationwide trend in Black activism. 
1963, SNCC endeavored to register African-American voters in central Alabama. The focus of those efforts was the county seat, Selma, where only one or two percent of eligible Black voters were actually registered. And so, led by SNCC Chairman John Lewis, Hosea Williams, one of Dr. Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference lieutenants, and some 600 demonstrators walked two by two the six blocks to the Edmund Pettus Bridge that crossed the Alabama River and led out of Selma on Sunday, March 7th, which is now known as Bloody Sunday. And on March 15th, just over a week after Bloody Sunday, President Lyndon Baines Johnson introduced voting rights legislation in an address to a joint session of Congress. So 61 years after Bloody Sunday, the Voting Rights Act is still being challenged. Dr. Kimbrough, can you explain to our listeners what you think is at stake when you talk to your students, when you you know walk around college campuses and you recognize that we've come a really long way, but we've got a long way to go. What do you tell your young people about voting and the importance of, of keeping this fight alive? Yeah, it's it, it has to be a bigger picture, I think, for too many voters, I think the question is, if I voted for you and I don't get what I want immediately, then why should I vote for you again? And, you know, I, sometimes I look at it based on parties. Um, I think many times Republican voters are more ideological. And so they're thinking, you know, I, I have this idea that I want the country to look a certain way. Um, and so it's more transformational versus being a transactional, which I think a lot of young people will say, well, I voted for so-and-so and I didn't get this and I didn't get that. Not mm -hmm. understanding that there are many layers that are involved. And so, you know, with this current election season and for the next few years, people are talking about, you know, crime and inflation, all those kinds of things. But you have to look bigger picture in terms of issues of democracy, where your vote be able to be counted. Do we really create what I always fear that we create an American apartheid system because that's how it's starting to look. You look at the gerrymandering uh, in, in places like, you know, Louisiana, where I live, and it's a state that's 35, 38% black. There's six congressional districts. And so all the black folks are sort of stuck into one. And the way that they draw these districts, same thing in Alabama, they draw them in ways to sort of limit your voice to, to really deal with the issue. So people are upset to say, well, we didn't get X, Y, and Z. It's like, because you don't have enough votes. The math is a math. You don't have the math to do that, but you aren't looking at it like that. So you get mad and then say, well, I'm not going to vote anymore. So I think I've heard people talk about it. I think democracy is on the ballot. You start looking at certain things. And so you start with Roe versus Wade. You know, a lot of my friends will say this too. Affirmative action is dead. So mm -hmm. that's the next thing which will impact even students at HBCUs. That, that's an impact for them and other opportunities that they will have. So those are the kinds of things that people need to start thinking about. So, and I think students are understanding that. I had a conversation recently with some Morehouse students, you know, being in, in the state of Georgia and, and looking at the, the Senate campaign and just looking at our choices for candidates and just to say, why is this even halfway close? Right. I mean, right. When, when one of the candidates basically represents every negative stereotype of black men, Every and that's the person that is being propped up as the person to be one of 100 people to mm -hmm. serve this country. So, I mean, we had a robust discussion about this recently. So, I think they're getting some of that, but it's, it's you have to think long term. It just can't be transactional right now. I voted for you and I didn't get this immediately, so I'm not going to vote because that's not how other folks think about it. They're like, I might not get it now. So, like, you know, Mitch McConnell says, I'm playing a long game. And he, he wrote a book where he talked about that. Right, so it's right. like we have to think long game as well and not immediate. Yeah. And I think, you know, that 
piece is so important. But I think for me, with my students, when I'm explaining to them about the long game and their impatience in some ways, because, you know, the frustration they have is, well, I voted for this person and they didn't win. So the system is ridiculous and I don't I don't want to play anymore. And I have to explain to them, this isn't the time to pack up your marbles and go. We actually have to stay in it. I mean, when we think about the civil rights movement, this was decades. This was a yeah. long conversation that we had, a series of fights, multiple fights on a daily basis. And that's the way we have to fight for our democracy on a daily basis. So what what's inspiring you right now? I mean, you know, I always say I have the honor and privilege to be with young people on a daily basis. Um, you know, you're on a new campus, you're you're yeah. back in your old city. What's inspiring you right now when you look at these young men on Morehouse's campus uh, when it comes to either voting rights or fighting for our democracy or just leadership in general? What are they focusing on and what are you getting excited about? Yeah, it's this has been, I think, a great experience for me, you know, once again, not having the day to day of a presidency to to deal with so I can really be in the space. And then you don't moment. have to be the firefighter. Right. I'm not the <laughs> firefighter at all. So it's like if something's on on fire, nobody's calling me. So I'm OK. I can't whip out my little badge and say I can fight fires, too. But anyway, that's another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that's Herschel Walker. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, you know, just in, in terms of finding these young men who want to be connected, who have these goals and dreams and really have a realization, which I try to tell students a lot, the power of being connected. The number of students who will just sort of see me and connect and say, hey, I want to come talk to you. I'm, like I said, I'm the new guy on campus, but for people to understand and say, this is somebody that I need to know. He might be able to help me as I want to develop my dreams. I talked to a student recently about a mentoring program that he wants to do, a student who transferred into Morehouse, originally from California. So I'm just meeting you know, guys that are coming in that are having these ideas and how they want to make an impact on the world has been exciting to me that they have. You know, I heard a, a Morehouse grad at a panel discussion a few years ago talk about this idea of relentless excellence. And mm-hmm. I, I see that. I feel it. I mean, I, it, it's palpable to me. And so that makes me excited to be in a space like this where you have these young men who really want to do well, who want to push each other to do well as um, as well. So uh, it, it's been invigorating on so many levels. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we're coming back with Dr. Walter Kimbrough playing The Blackest Questions. And we are back with Dr. Walter Kimbrough. We're playing the Blackest Questions. Are you ready for question number four? I am ready. Okay. So this is a young African-American indentured servant is believed to have helped in the creation of the Star Spangled Banner flag. Who was she? That sounds familiar, but... um... I don't know. So this one, I had to look up myself. It's Grace Wisher. So when Wisher entered into her six-year contract with Mary Pickersgill on January 6, 1810, she was there to learn the art and mystery of housework and plain sewing. And she was believed to be about 10 years old. And Wisher's mother, Jenny, also signed the contract to become an indentured servant. So not much is known about Wisher, but places like the Star Spangled Banner Flag House 
the former location where she and Pickersgill once lived, are trying to make Wisher's contribution to the iconic flag known. And this is the flag with 15 stars and 15 stripes. And so it's at the site of the well-known painting by Robert McGill McCall, which depicts the scene of Pickersgill and her household with the flag, but Wisher isn't shown in the portrait. So to represent the young woman in the image, the museum has drawn a ghost figure on the plexiglass that hangs over the painting. So this is part of a larger conversation of the contributions of Black people to the foundation of America. And, you know, Walter, I have a somewhat complicated relationship with the U.S. flag and stay, saying the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, as a university president who, you know, is in charge of not just the production of knowledge and not just building an institution, but you're also, you know, creating a foundation for American democracy as well. And I'm, I'm pretty sure flags fly all over the university. Yeah. What's your relationship with the flag and how do you feel when you when you sort of have those you know, pomp and circumstance moments with the flag? Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. I think, um, you know, for a lot of HBCUs, when you have those formal programs, you will do the national anthem as well as a Negro national anthem, mm -hmm. which I think particularly a lot of HBCU choirs uh, have really taken to a, you know, a, a great level. So that's really important. You know, particularly after Kaepernick, you would have more opportunities where if you have a sporting event and you have the national anthem, you would see more people who would sit at those kinds of things. You know, for me, it was like, is it really even necessary sometimes to even play the national anthem at a sporting event? Let's just play the game. So that's what we really started to do because that wasn't as important. Um, sure on those campuses, the flag flies, because part of it is, uh, and I tell our students as well, when you're on a campus where 70 plus percent of your students are Pell Grant eligible, that means you're receiving federal funds. Those are taxpayers dollars, and they're not just black tech, that black taxpayers. Those are taxpayers. And so that you still have this relationship with the federal government, whether you've got some issues with it or not, that you're not going to make it on your own without that federal support. And that's something that, I mean, you're owed that federal support as well, but that means that everybody technically has a stake in that campus and that institution. Mm -hmm. So that's the way that I, I look at it like that. I don't make that much of a, a big deal out of it. I mean, I have a 17-year-old at home, a 16-year-old, and she won't stand for the for the anthem for all kinds of things. And it's like, and I was just asking, like, well, tell me why. So if you can explain it, I'm cool with that. That's not a problem. Right. Um, oh, spoken like a true educator, right? It's like, listen, if you can explain the protest, I'm into it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> if you can, yeah, so, then we got an issue. Right. We got it. Right. We have an issue. So I, I look at it. So I, you know, I just try to balance that to say, all right, you know, I always tease folks too about, you know, a complicated place like Howard University where there are lots of protests, mm -hmm. but Howard really receives about a quarter of its budget directly from the federal government. So it's like, all right, I understand y'all want to protest certain things, but without that federal government support, you don't exist. Right. So there is a complicated relationship that, you know, if you want to be completely independent and receive no federal funding, you go ahead and do that. But realistically, there is no HBCU in the country that can do that. Right. That's just impossible. So, yeah, there are going to be some things, which goes back to your, your original point. That means that they also have a stake in making sure that the country works for them. And it's not that you can sit out and not vote and do certain things. You've got to be engaged in the work. I think that's very important. Well, I, and I agree with you 1,000%. One, 1, now, part of what we try and do here on The Blackest Questions is also, you know, just introduce new individuals um, that many people have never heard of, you know? And, and my argument is always, Black history is American history, and yeah. we should know all these great Black figures in American history, but so should everyone else. It shouldn't just be Black people who know all the great contributions of Black folks in this country. Is there a particular figure in Black history who you 
really love that isn't as wide as widely known. You know, I feel like a lot of people know Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and Harry Tubman. And no disrespect to those amazing Americans, by the way, not just Black right. Americans. But is there someone, you know, when you were pledging or in your studies where you're like, this person just doesn't get their just due? My person uh, is always Mary McLeod Bethune. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, former college president. So, of course, uh, she would resonate with me as well. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go back to Mays. And that's just part of, because mm -hmm. people talk about King, but I'm like, but do you understand who his college president was? And he became a model for me as a president because you would read each of their works and they would talk about the relationship that they had. Mm -hmm. So after Benjamin Mays would do the weekly chapel service, Dr. King would come to the office and debate the, the conversation. They had that kind of relationship. And I always told people, I want to be the kind of college president like Dr. Mays, because when Dr. King died, his college president gave his eulogy. To me, mm. that's powerful that, you know, you have that kind of relationship that you're speaking at the student's funeral, giving that eulogy. Um, so I think that the way that he crafted this institution being president from 1940 to 1967 uh, has just always been fascinating to me. So I'm just, I think we talk a lot about King, but then we don't read enough from Dr. Mays, uh, who wrote a book called Disturbed About Man. It's one of the most powerful books I've ever read. So he was just this very thoughtful kind of person that I was really excited about. Oh, I'm so excited to get that book today. I'm going to go to my local Black bookstore and, and find it. Okay, we're going to take a quick commercial break. I'm sitting here talking to Dr. Walter Kimbrough. I uh, can't wait to come back to the Blackest Questions. Okay, we're back. Final question on the Blackest Questions. Walter, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Largely credited with helping build America's middle class after World War II, what bill denied possibly one million Black World War II veterans economic opportunities? The GI Bill. The GI Bill is correct. So the GI Bill is a piece of sweeping legislation aimed at helping World War II veterans prosper after World War II. The bill helped white Americans prosper and accumulate wealth in the post-war years, but it didn't deliver on that promise for veterans of color. In fact, the wide disparity in the bill's implementation ended up helping drive growing gaps in wealth, education, and civil rights between white and Black Americans. The GI Bill's language did not specifically exclude African-American veterans from its benefits. It was structured in a way that ultimately shut doors for the 1.2 million Black veterans who had bravely served their country during World War II in segregated ranks. And when lawmakers began drafting the GI Bill in 1944, some Southern Democrats feared that returning Black veterans would use public sympathy for veterans to advocate against Jim Crow laws. So to make sure the GI Bill largely benefited white people, the Southern Democrats drew on tactics they'd previously used to ensure that the New Deal helped as few Black people as possible. And we now know because of party realignment, those Southern Democrats are now members of the, the modern day Republican Party. So you spoke about the GI Bill creating a wealth gap. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, that, that research that you've done? Yeah, so, you know, part of, particularly recently when President Biden said that he was going to forgive this student loan debt, $10,000 and up to $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients, I kept hearing people saying, well, that's just not fair. 
And I'm like, let's talk about the history of unfairness that created this income and wealth inequality. Let's start with the GI Bill because black soldiers didn't have the same benefits. And a lot of times they ended up having to go to under-resourced HBCUs that we're finding more out about, particularly those that were state institutions, part of the, the Moral Land Grant Act. They received federal money contingent upon their states providing a match. States didn't provide the same match. So now you have states like Louisiana that was short at a billion dollars or a couple billion mm. dollars in Tennessee or Georgia. So all across the South, these schools have been shorted. So when the school has less money, what happens? That means that the students then have to take out larger loans. So that greatly impacts. So we're talking about things that aren't fair. I can show you a whole lot that hasn't been fair. And you can link it to the GI Bill. They weren't able to, even if they had the bill, they weren't able to buy houses in certain areas. And so we know that particularly for African-Americans, that's a major way that we accumulate wealth. So you couldn't accumulate wealth the same kind of way. And you couldn't generate that wealth that didn't help pay for college. So then to say now, well, it's not fair. I completely reject that. It's like, let's talk about not fair. Let's talk mm -hmm. about most, you know, uh, black students as a whole are women. And the HBCUs is about two to one black women. And if we think about equal uh, black women's equal payday, this past uh -huh. year, it was middle of September. So black women have to work 19 months to make what white men make in 12 months. That's not fair either. So we're not talking about that. So I'm like, I don't want to hear the fairness conversation unless we have a broad fairness conversation. So this loan forgiveness, particularly geared towards students with, you know, who come from the lowest socioeconomic backgrounds is fair. That's, mm -hmm. it's, it's fundamentally fair. So that's the way that I present, but you can link it all. I always start with a GI Bill. Let's let's start there and let's take it all the way forward. Right, right. And you know, I, I think so many folks don't want to um to have loan forgiveness because of this this fairness question, but we are so ahistoric as a nation. Okay. We don't go back to talk about, you know, as I mentioned in in my brief uh description of the GI Bill, you know, so much of the New Deal cut out black women. So from a hundred years ago. We, we had limitations on our wealth creation because domestics weren't included in the in the social safety net that was the New Deal. And we know back then the vast majority of domestics uh, who worked inside of, of homes were Black women. And so this is 100 years of money that was not able to be invested uh, and put into Black families and circulations. Um, so besides loan debt forgiveness, are there other ways that we can kind of correct the errors of the GI Bill? and level the playing field? Well, so one of the main things that we advocated in the HBCU community is uh, the use of the Pell Grant. The Pell Grant mm -hmm. hasn't really kept up with costs. Um, really, the Pell Grant should be tripled. I mean, we, we talked about doubling it, but Pell Grant, because it, targeted, it targets low-income students, regardless of race, it's one of the fairest things that can be done. It's that kind of investment that we should make. But what has happened over the course of time is that as America has become blacker and browner, and the people in Congress have still, stay, they stay the same. They look the same way. You have more and more people who are saying this on a state and a federal level who are saying some of it out loud. Well, those kids don't need the same kind of education. So I, they were willing to put the money years ago into a GI Bill that they aren't willing to make the same kind of investment in the Pell Grant today. Why? Because most of those Pell Grant recipients actually look like Americans. And people don't want to level that playing field for everyone else. That's one of, if we would just do Pell Grant and triple the value of the Pell Grant so that low-income people, no matter what their race or background is, could have access to that money, that would be a major investment in the future of America. 
Uh, but once again, you, you have people who can start making excuses to say, oh, well, and I, it's just plain racism is what it is. I mean, let's right. just call it what it is. They, they don't want to make sure that these black and brown folks can get the same kind of education that their kids can get. So they want to keep this gap that exists. Right. And to, and to quote my father, excuses are the tools of the incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> so um, and, and we know that people have gone way out of their way to make sure that this this plain field is has never been leveled. We're going to take a quick break and I'm going to come back and we're going to play the, the Black Lightning Round with Dr. Walter Kimbrough. Okay, Walter, before we let you get out of here, we've got time for the Black Bonus Round questions. Are you ready for Black Lightning? Black Lightning, one of my favorite shows, yes. <laughs> and this is, there are no right answers. This is just how you feel about certain things. Okay, you ready? Okay, all right. Okay, city with the best food, New Orleans or Atlanta? Oh, it's got to be New Orleans. Okay, best HBCU campus, Philander Smith or Dillard? Dillard is beautiful. Soul food, fried chicken, cornbread, collard greens, or a plate of seafood, salmon with rice and broccoli? Fried chicken, cornbread, collard greens, and sweet tea with lemon. Oh, sweet. And you know you got to have the hot sauce on the side. <laughs> I, I don't need it. If the chicken is right, you don't need anything else. Oh, really? Okay, see, I always need I always need some hot sauce. Okay, here we go. Public Enemy or Black Star? Public Enemy. Kirk Franklin or Ricky Dillard? Oh. Yes, I love them both. Um, I'm probably going to lean with Kirk since Kirk has spoken on two of my campuses. So I'm going to lean with Kirk just because of the relationship. Right. <laughs> MC Light or Queen Latifah? MC Light uh, was on our board at Dillard. Uh, that's that's my girl. Oh, goodness. She is reverse aging, too. She and Queen Latifah, both of them. I'm yeah. like, what is happening? You all look like you're 22 years old. Okay. Best rap group, Outcast or Tribe Called Quest? Uh, Outcast. You got to stay home with Atlanta. It's not even close. And, and Big Boy is one of the most underrated rappers. If you have a top five underrated, Big Boy's in that group. He's underrated. Well, you know, Walter, I'm a birder, and I just found out that he's a birder. So, you know, now all of a sudden, he's my new best friend. Yeah, yeah. Okay, would you rather order Chinese takeout or have a 12-ounce steak with potatoes? 12-ounce, easily. Okay. Yeah, easily. If you had to choose, how to get, how to get away with murder or scandal? Oh, scandal. I'm still in love with Kerry Washington. My, that's my, my girlfriend. My wife knows that, too. So at some point in time, I got to meet Kerry Washington because uh, I'm still in love with her. Yes. That's okay. You're allowed. Okay. Here we go. On a drive from New Orleans to Atlanta, are you listening to gospel or golden age hip hop? 87 uh, and 93. I'm probably listening to gospel, actually. Probably listening okay. to gospel. Yeah. Well, Walter, I just want to thank you so much for joining the Blackest Questions. I, I really want to thank you for your dedication and your service to Black people in general uh, and higher education more specifically. I'm so excited um, to see what you do next. And give us the name of your book one more time, just so for all of our listeners who love and appreciate Greek life can check it out. Right. So the book is Black Greek 101, The Culture, Customs, and Challenges of Black Fraternities and Sororities. Next year actually will turn 20 years old. And I still meet people who are just saying, when I was going through my process, it was required for me to read your book. So that's always one of the biggest compliments I can get, that these people who are coming from all different organizations who say, we had to read your book. So uh, I, I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. Well, I'm appreciative that you've joined us here on The Blackest Questions, and I want to thank you all for listening to The Blackest Questions. The show is produced by Akila Shedrick, Jesse Vargas, and Sasha Armstrong. And if you like what you heard, please download the GRIO app and listen and watch many more great shows and share it with everyone you know. 